Fragile podcast. We're in the Royal Tavern in Cheltenham. What are we drinking today? I can't remember what mine was. Bobby's for you and a Dunkerton Cider. There you go. We're going to go yet, but the idea is we're going to get together now and again and talk about whatever's been going on and see where it leads us. So today, it's me, Jeff Watts, with Paul Goddard. Hello. What's been going on with you this week? So this week, Jeff, I largely I did a product owner course this week in Cardiff, which is very good. Um, I did. I went to a user group, the Bath Scrum user group this week, cool. which, was nice, which was a case study. That was that was nice to hear about. A company called Maiden, who's actually doing it, doing it very well and learning all the time. They they produce um, healthcare products, so software for maintaining patient records and. Uh, patient information for mental health okay so that's really interesting and it was just really nice to see a company that's doing it well and learning all the time and actual scrum success stories so for people like us to actually hear about that our jobs are actually worthwhile anything interesting that came up um, interesting talk about scaling they're having some problems with the scaling the product owner role particularly. It was really interesting to see how um, they don't know what the answer is and they were all keen to, to, to try and work out and ask for help. They were asking for help from people in the room as to what the answer was. Good for them. I, I don't think anyone actually knows, but, but um, a lot of people would confess to know, but I, but I, don't, I don't think, I think it's something they just learn about themselves. See too many people stand up at these places and pretend they, they know the answers and don't don't want to admit where they don't. Or copy, Jeff. Copy. Everyone copies everyone else these days. Um, just because it works in one company doesn't in a certain way doesn't mean it'll work somewhere else. So it's great to see a company that's actually just prepared to try things out, learn learn as they do it, and then adjust. It's probably the best example I've seen in recent times of a, a truly evolutionary approach to adoption. And what have they tried so far? So they tried with try, um, scaling their teams. They tried to put people into teams themselves, but they found that didn't work. So they let the teams organise themselves into different teams. Uh, they've tried with um, scaling the product owner role with different with the scrum masters helping out, which didn't work well very well because the scrum masters were being doing less of their job. So they just they've they've been through a lot of ups and downs, um, and the developers have tried certain things out from a technical perspective, some of which haven't worked. Somehow, what about you? What have you been up to? Um, do some more writing. What are you writing about? Uh, product owners. Uh huh. Good to great product ownership, and uh, so I've been coaching some product owners at a company in London, which is interesting. Um, well, what was I doing yesterday? Yeah, oh yeah, so, so uh, some personal coaching. Yeah. Um, uh, Scrum Master, it's again in London. Um, different challenges, moving from one company to another, different teams, <coughs> different departments, uh, getting successful in one area, working out how to apply that to other areas. Um, always nice to see people who are looking to, to get some, some external sounding boards really and um, get some coaching from outside of their experience and always looking to improve must be hard to sell that though right yeah 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 
they, a lot of these people, they, they, they struggle to get any kind of funding from their organization for it. They, they might get some funding for some training now and again, but getting funding for some external coaching is, is really hard for a lot of people. Um, so some of them are actually paying for it out of their own pockets as a form of personal development. Really? Yeah. Why do you think? Why won't people pay for it? Why won't? Why wouldn't an organisation pay for something like that? I think it's well. The most common reason that I, that I hear is that it, compared to a training course, where you can list these are this is the content, this is the agenda, these are the topics that we're going to go through, these are the learning objectives that we're going to go through. And certainly for, for certified courses where you say, and at the end of it you will have a piece of paper that says you are at this level. Yeah. Coaching is a little bit more of a, a sort of shot in the dark for companies in that, well, how do I know that they're going to get value for money out of it? How do I know that they're going to get what, what they need? Uh, and in many ways, what we need. So more interested in whether that person is developing for the company objectives rather than their own personal objectives. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, how, how many, I'd be interested to know what people think in terms of what makes a successful adoption or a, a, set, a successful scrum journey, whether it's more measurable, tangible, velocity-based data metrics, or whether it's the people, the people, because they can't measure it, how do they actually know that it's making a difference to people? You can ask people, but until you, until you really get into the, the nitty-gritty of it, do you actually know? Yeah, well, I think Jeff Sutherland's a master at this kind of stuff. Isn't he? Putting, putting metrics, stats, on. yeah, so stats. doing twice the work in half the time kind of thing, and you see the amount of attention that which is of, very attractive. It is, yeah, it gets it gets people's attention. <coughs> they think, oh, I want some of that, and you know, if you were running a business and it was your money, why wouldn't you want twice as much? So, would you say it's, it's successful if you if you've got a team that's producing twice as much but they're miserable? Personally, no. No, um, and I've seen quite a few organisations where, um, not necessarily Scrum, but whatever, the, you know, the drive for efficiency, the drive for improvement, the drive for greater productivity has had the, the, the consequence of the team burning out and not being interested, and, and that's unsustainable because people then leave. Um, and then they've, they've lost everything. They've lost all the tacit noise, they've lost all the motivation, they've lost all the engagement. But maybe management have got their bonuses by then, so they don't matter. Yeah. It's the short term game. Uh, what else has been happening this week? Um, I had an interesting conversation. I'll ask you about this now. A product owner okay. in a course that I was on this week. We were talking about the the scrum roles, the the mix, the blend, the, the responsibilities, and he stopped me halfway through a, a, um, a, a slide that I was talking through, and he said his question was. Should should the product owner be a be a motivator? His words were being motivated to people in this front team, like a an inspiration or a cheerleader or something. Well, that's again, what what do we? How do we quantify the word or qualify the word motivator? Okay, because people often assume someone who motivates with like a fitness instructor or okay. someone who a cheerleader yeah. that stands at the side of a, of a sports pitch, but. And what was interesting was that he'd always assumed that that role was, was something fulfilled by more of a scrum, a scrum master, a, a, a kind of a, a facilitator stroke motivator. But what was interesting that what we were talking about is that there's actually a lot of opportunities for a pro if a product owner is doing the right things, almost without knowing, without 
focusing on being motiv a motivating type of a person can still actually motivate teams by providing a good le a leadership from a product owner's perspective. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, the Scrum Master, I wouldn't say, would be someone that does that directly. If I... But has the Scrum Master got to be someone that, that's got to be able to motivate people by a people process, people understanding? Well, I look at it as they're, they're there to try and create the right environment such that motivation occurs naturally. And part of that will be helping the product owner frame the project, the vision, the goal, so that it's compelling, that it's clear, that it's understandable, that we know what we're doing, there's a purpose for the team. So here's a question for you. Okay. Is it possible to motivate a scrum team without a product owner? Uh, yeah. Yeah. You might, you might not necessarily get huge business value as a result, because you might not have that, that business drive attached to it, but you, I can imagine a team easily that, that was attacking a, a technical problem that a product owner wasn't really interested in, so they wouldn't really have the business value goal at the end of it. Um, and the fact that it was interesting to the team, the fact that they could personally see the benefit in it, um, it was a new sexy technology perhaps, they get to experiment with, that would be a motivating situation, even though there was perhaps no product under there. Mm. What did the rest of the room think when he asked this question? Well, I think they, as part of the, the discussion, as part of the exercise that we were doing at the time, I think people actually realised that there's some fairly easy stuff they could do as a product owner, yeah. which perhaps has an indirect effect on their on a team's motivation than more indirect, more directly than they thought. Okay. Such as, such as a fairly strong, a compelling reason to do something, giving a bit of a context a vision behind, an inspiration behind, an ambition that they're trying to achieve, the impossible goal, whatever that might be, or the um, just being able to relate to actual people, how actual human beings, especially, so in this case with this, the maiden example I talked about earlier, when you're dealing with, and the product owner, Claire, who was there this week um, in the, in the meetup was saying, it's quite easy to, to demonstrate the benefits because Literally, it's people's lives that are involved. Okay, so because it's a healthcare product, you're dealing with with mental health issues. Yeah. If you lose a patient's data, or if we can't effectively store the right patient data, you know someone's health is at risk. Yeah. So it's it's a very compelling, a very easy sell to a team that are related to you know, actually saving lives at mm. the end of the day. But a lot, I don't think a lot of teams have that advantage. A lot of teams are working on products or small parts in big products that they don't really realise. Yeah what the overall benefit is. So a product owner can, can make that connection fairly easily by just explaining or just giving scenarios, talking through scenarios that real people are involved with yeah. or bringing real people into the whole development itself. Yeah. Uh, that, that just got me thinking there of uh, a long time ago, you and I did a course and um, somebody was talking about motivation and, and we've been talking about the Dan Pink stuff and he said, all right, but how do you, how do you motivate a team where the project is you know, a big two-year database rewrite? It's boring as hell. Yeah. And I think you and I looked at each other and went, I don't know. <laughs> but the, 
that, that connection, you know, your product, the more you can get that connection, what's the database for? What, what service is it providing? Who is using it? Someone inevitably is using it. Yeah. Someone inevitably gets value from it. And that, that rewrite must be making it better, otherwise why would you do it? So that connection, from, from that, this individual isn't aware, isn't able to see the purpose of that rewrite. Well, I, think, I think there's an interesting... Um, comparison here is a lot of the projects I so we both came from BT, I worked at Nokia. A lot of the projects that we did were purely for architectural reasons. Yeah. Now that no is, end user. That is never going to be as as um, powerful, anywhere near as powerful as, as a as a human reason to do. But inevitably there is still a human element to it. It's just it's it's actually explaining where the humans are rather than yeah. where the has anything else interesting happened to you this week, Jeff? Perhaps outside of work that you'd like to talk about? <laughs> I um, Well, I help out with um, with Wisconsin's cricket team. Yeah. And uh, we had an interesting challenge this week where, you know, as, as, a, as a coach, myself and this other coach, trying to work out where, uh, you know, where we stopped with regards to relentless support, if you like. Um, and there are kids there that aren't up to the level of competing against other kids their age. Yeah. Um, and uh, cricket. What age group is this? This is under. Well, they're nine and ten years right. ten years old. Um, and uh, yeah, the, last week they got absolutely thrashed, uh, completely outclassed. And with cricket, it can be potentially dangerous. The ball's very hard and if some kids can bowl it really, really fast and these other kids can't react in time, they can get hurt. Uh, so talking about our duty of care, trying to develop these kids uh, and encourage their interest, but you can't throw them in the deep end. Um, so as a coach, you want to encourage them, you want to support them, you want to develop them, but you have this sort of duty of care with, with their ability levels. Um, I know you're doing something similar with rugby, aren't you? Yeah, so these kids who um, are at a young age, I was on a coaching course last weekend for rugby, level one coaching, which is it's basically teaching kids up to the age of 13, 12, 13. And the, the interesting, they, they set you a question that the, uh, the, the, the educators on the course were saying, um, if you had a, were attending a festival, um, which festivals are just large, number, you know, big numbers of kids from little clubs all trying to all playing in matches together, and you are only allowed to take a squad of eighteen. Um, how how would you select players for a game, basically? So you've got a lot of a lot of interested kids, a lot of um, enthusiastic kids. How do you split uh, four games during the day? How do you split those eighteen players up across the day? No, you can only play seven aside. Um, and a lot of interesting discussions came out as to well, you should. The general theme seems to be give everyone a chance. Give everyone, you know, that age group where you're trying to encourage kids to to play and just enjoy it. Then everyone should get any, even whether it's a time box thing, eight minutes each, or whether it's a certain you know rolling substitutions. But then the interesting in terms of are you then not giving the people who've got a better ability a chance to actually perform? Are you not giving? Are you potentially putting off lower ability children who? Perhaps haven't got the confidence to even catch a ball yet. So it's an interesting, you know, when is at that point as a when you're told you're a coach and you're told uh, we're we're kind of told that we have very little influence in what people should do. Is there a point that you do intervene? Is there a point that you do guide, give instruction? But 
mainly for people's safety or mainly for people's confidence or morale is there a point that you say this is a bad choice this is a bad decision and in our job that's that's a really when you're dealing with grown-ups in a in a, in a corporate environment where everyone's expected to be of a certain ability is there still an opportunity that, or still an expectation that you should be able to stop something or be able to change something that you don't feel is right for the good of the team I don't know I guess there's a big one big difference in that as you put, call them grown-ups in a, in a corporate environment, they would have applied for their job. They would have yeah, they've they been brought into it. They would have met a certain criteria before being given the job. But um, actually, for some of the some of the, the content of moving into an agile team, for example, from a traditional team, they're actually maybe changing their job description of what's expected of them. They're expected to collaborate rather than work independently. They're expected to to test as well as develop. And all of those things might not be part of their school core skill set. Yeah. That they need to consciously develop. So, what do you do with those individuals to give them the confidence so that they don't you know, get thrown in the deep end? Mm. Another interesting, just made me think of another interesting thing that came out of this course. Obviously, there's a lot of different people there from a lot of different clubs across yeah. Wiltshire, um, and um, they were telling some stories about parents. So, parents about parents. Some parents will send their children to coaching on a Sunday at the rugby club. Okay. Just to get them out of the house, get, you know, to let them run around the, the pitch or whatever that might be. And we're talking about um, encouraging the right behaviours at home. Right. So rugby is very much a, a, a social game. It's a, a, a game built around teamwork and that type of thing. Um, there were some parents that were paying their children in terms of giving them pocket money if for, for the number of tries that they scored. Oh, wow. Really? So genuinely, they were in training. Yeah, so oh, they were on a, on a Sunday morning, they were trying to encourage little Jimmy, whoever that was, that they'd get fifty p extra in their pocket money for every try that they scored. Which, and you can imagine how much that potentially, if little Jimmy is a, is a good player, um, encourages the wrong type of behaviour. Rugby is all about creating. Yeah. Teams create scores in rugby rather than individuals. So. Um, that I thought that was quite interesting. That, that again, generally, then we, we talked how about how, do, how does a coach. Well, we were talking about how does a co- how could a coach become involved or help coach the child outside of the game rather yeah. than just within the game. That's, that's we, quite similar to an organisation like where where the actual reward policies of the organisation, the quarterly performance reviews, and all that, are, are encouraging individualistic behaviours at the yeah. expense of teams. But imagine your boss is telling telling you. To do your own thing rather than help anyone else out, and that—that that was. It seems really, even for us as parents, it's, that doesn't seem right. No. Um, so is that an in- educational intervention on the part of the coach then? Yeah, possibly. Yeah, pull the parents one side yeah. and suggest the reasons why that isn't a great idea and how it might be promoting the wrong type of behaviours. Getting them on board. Yeah, and it's probably all with, you know good intentions, isn't it? Well, I imagine. Like, Something that we've talked a lot about the New Zealanders in terms of the, the, the rugby mentality, the culture in New Zealand. Coaches the other way around, um, whereby they, I think one club in particular, gave each player points for an assist rather than for a score. Yeah. So at the end of the season, they added up the number of assists, four points for an assist rather than one point for a score. Right. And then they gave the player of the year to the player that had 
basically assisted the most okay. tries rather than all of the all of the rugby achievement evenings that I've ever been to have always awarded the top try, top try scorer. Yeah. And I don't think that hasn't changed over the ten years I've been involved with yeah. the game, fifteen years. But it does reward individual behaviours rather than uh, awarding and kids, even at the age of seven, are very aware of that. Yeah. That that scoring is something that gets noticed and something that wins you uh, rewards. Maybe originally, which is should politicians be um, to a motivator, maybe a cheerleader. I think it's easier for them to because the because they have well. they have more say more opportunity to provide purpose to the to the it's very scrum scrum as we know is very hard to sell okay um it's perhaps easier to sell to to to, to people in the scrum team rather than people beyond it right but it's still hard the scrum master's got limited things at their assets to, at their disposal to actually appear attractive to a team okay. product owner can lay their hands pretty easily on a product should be able to provide fairly easily a product vision product backlog a list of interesting things to work on, as well as a connection between the, that, those people and the human beings, the the, um, the users, customers, yeah. consumers, whatever you want to call them. Product owners should be able to provide that context, and even without being, I'd maybe even argue without even being that charismatic, but just purely having access to those artifacts, yeah, and saying, look. This is the reason why we're building this product. Can still has the opportunity to motivate someone rather than not having. It. Yeah, I agree. I mean, seeing as you mentioned charisma, should the product owner be charismatic? I think I don't think they have to be. I think it would be an advantage if they are. But then I could think that being it. Any, any type of leadership position, it would be an advantage to be charismatic. Could be a disadvantage? Could be. Could be seen as false or could be seen as um, annoyingly over-enthusiastic. Yeah. It'd bring people along on a wild goose chase and get people's yeah. interest levels up for something that doesn't actually work. And if you're, if you're enthusiastic about the wrong things, it could be, it could separate you as someone who's purely just looking after their own interests. Yeah. You've almost got to be that 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 connection between the team and the users at all points rather than doing this building this product for your own benefit product, the word product owner in itself is kind of alludes to the fact that that person is the benefactor the individual benefactor but they're not really in my view but they shouldn't be Unless, unless you have the advantage of that product and actually being the client or the user themselves. But in most of my situations that I coach and I see, that's rarely the case. It's normally someone who's representing a number of people who will benefit. Yeah. Yeah. So they have the opportunity. And charisma could help, but it could hinder. What does charisma look like? What, 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 what would we determine? Is that a subjective thing? Is that something that appeals to some teams but not others is it to appeal to everyone I think I think I don't know I think charisma appeals to everyone but everyone defines charisma as something different charisma I think is something about connecting at a personal level you, you kind of you, you kind of believe in that person and you get swept up in in them to a degree as, as well as what they're saying and what they're talking about do you think 
a, a charismatic person is someone that you like? Do you think, my point is, does the scrum team have to like the product owner? I don't think they have to like the product If they like the idea, if they like the purpose yeah. and like the vision, I think that's, that's good enough. But I think if they like the product owner, then that's an extra sense. You know, people will go out of their way more for people they like. Yeah, true. Um, consciously and subconsciously. Yeah. They will I'll put that extra effort in. They'll be more engaged. They'll be more connected, not just to what it is, but who it is. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that can. I'm just, I'm just throwing around a question in my mind here is, is there anyone who's charismatic that I don't like? Is it possible to dislike but I think that because they are charismatic? But we, like you said, we define charisma ourselves. Yeah. And surely we would define that in the way that we would like it to have an effect on us. Yeah. And that's generally not a, a negative thing. No, but maybe there's maybe there's, there might be another word for negative charisma, but is not coming to mind because we're in a pub. <laughs> Negative charisma. That's just someone that annoys you. That's that CEO that stands at the front and claps and, and uh, arrogance. arrogance. Yeah. Mm. I think if you're an arrogant product owner, then you won't. Well, in my view, you might know what you know your subject, but would you get people to follow you? But there's a, there's, there's a huge similarity in terms of this leadership function that between a scrum master and a product owner because they both have they both should have those characteristics but they have different tools at their disposal to to lead mm. leading in different ways yeah because we again we talk about leadership we talk about servant leadership mainly associated with the scrum master but if you I'd argue that if you've got a, a, a great product owner you know, the need for leadership from from both parties could could well be something that a product owner takes more of a, a leadership role than, in themselves. Oh, you know, from our chats over the years, you know, I've got a strong feeling about this that ultimately a scrum master has the potential to be not needed yeah. if the product owner can step, step up away, and, yeah, yeah. and fulfil that that connection as well as providing that leadership. We've got that self-organising team that sense of discipline, rigor, collaboration, then you know, there's no reason why a product owner can't do that themselves. Um, and actually looking at looking having that, that role in the short term might be a stumbling block for some teams. It's generally an enabler for almost all, but mm -hmm. for those that are ready, yeah. Okay. Should we wind this one up? We'll wrap it up there, Jeff. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been um, our first podcast. Pub we're going to call it a pubcast because we're generally going to do these things from a pub. Today, uh, you're listening to us from the tavern in Cheltenham, United Kingdom. Um, and we'll look forward to hearing from you on the next one. I, should, I feel I should chink your glass Cheers. to prove that we're here. Cheers, Jeff. All the best. Thank you.